so onward with this the sermon series. So the sermon series I mentioned that we're in right now is on sovereignty. Um, and this is week two of three of this series. Josh spoke last week. If you weren't here to hear that, it's posted both on YouTube, the video, a little bit of a weird echo. So if that, if that throws you off, the audio only version is on the website under the sermons and you can check that out. Uh, Brant's going to be up here next week sharing. And so this is just a kind of a quick hit at this one. Um, I have to tell you, when Josh first mentioned doing this series, my initial reaction was something to the effect of, mm, no, thank you. Don't really want to touch that one with a 10-foot pole. I don't like it. Not going to go there. Y'all have fun. Because um, it's a daunting subject, you know. This is, I feel like we kind of put ourselves out there with this one. Um, but we're going to approach, we have been approaching this one a bit differently. So this sermon series, and including my sermon today, comes with some disclaimers. Uh, and here they are. So we've got three different speakers with three different perspectives. Though those of you that know Josh and I know that we are not the same person at all. <laughs> we are very different. We look at things very differently. He's, he's like this nerdy theological type, and I'm like, yeah, can't we all just love Jesus um, kind of thing, you know? So we come at things very differently. We have very different perspectives. You know, I might say some things over the next uh, 30 to 40 minutes that might challenge you, that you might disagree with, um, and that's okay. You know, you might hear me, hear me say some things that maybe aren't 100%, um, I guess, in line with or that agree with things that Josh said last week or maybe that Brant will say next week, and that's okay. Because um, this is one of those things that, you know, honestly, we just don't really fully understand, but we come to it with our own perspectives, our own understandings, our own approaches to Scripture and that sort of thing. And so what's likely going to happen both in this sermon this morning and in this series that we're doing is we're going to bring those things to you for your consideration. Not so much a teaching as it is, here's our experience with God and his sovereignty and where we come from in, in our approach to scripture and that sort of thing. Um, and to challenge some of our ideas and some of our understandings and our assumptions about God's sovereignty and especially where those things come from and how we've arrived at where you know each of us might be in our own understanding of that. Um, and where, where those things might actually be inconsistent with what we say we believe about the rest of God's nature and character. Um, let, let's see if we've gone off track anywhere. Uh, but you know, my final, final disclaimer on that is all three of us, we reserve the right to be wrong. <laughs> uh, we reserve the right to change our theology and perspective over time. You know, the things that I used to think about God's sovereignty when I was young and little have changed. Um, as I have walked out my walk of faith um, and, and understood more about God and his nature and his character and, and things have been revealed by the Holy Spirit, you know, and so that, you know, if we were to look at this sermon, you know, 10, 15 years from now, some things may have shifted, but, but everything we say is with conviction um, and, and with evidence from the word and, and what we believe that, that the Father has said to us. Um, and we share these things because, you know, at some point in time, we are all going to have to wrestle with it. If you haven't already, that's amazing, but you will at some point. At some point, we have to wrestle with, with world events, you know, with life circumstances, with disappointments and experiences and losses and doubts and questions, right? Because that's really what it is we're usually grappling with when we talk about God's sovereignty, right? That that's, it's, it's, we're beginning to ask those questions, yeah? We're often trying to reconcile that age-old question of why do bad things happen? And, and how is God in this? Where is God in this? Um, when we believe that God is in control, 
and yet our circumstances are saying something very different, or at least something very different than what we expect, yeah? Why is there suffering? Especially among followers of Jesus, you know, who from all accounts seem to have done the right things, and yet they, they experience great tragedy, you know? Why do children get sick and die? Why is there abuse? Why is there loss? Why do cities get demolished by hurricanes? Why do entire villages get get absolutely decimated by earthquakes and natural disasters? Why do innocent families get caught in a crossfire of war, you know, like we see in the Middle East right now? And why do the greedy, you know, so often get their way at the expense of others? Why do certain groups of people have the ability to oppress other groups of people? There's all this stuff that we have to wrestle with, and a lot of that's happening right now, right? Most of those things I mentioned have have been in the news (laughs) at some point in the past month, yeah? So why, God, why? So I'll pull back the curtain for you just a little bit. I mentioned that when John, Josh mentioned this sermon, I was like, mm, no, not really. But I'll pull back the curtain for you a little bit and tell you why it is that I decided to throw my hat in the ring in this sermon series after initially wanting to stay as far away from it as possible. A couple of months ago, uh, June, I think it was, sometime this summer, I got a phone call um, from a family member one of my brothers, now I keep thinking about how to say this. It's not my brother's wives. We don't have multiple wives in our family. It's one of my five brothers. His wife um, had a miscarriage. The pregnancy was quite far along. Um, they knew it was a little girl. They had names picked out. You know, they, they were ready to welcome this little girl in a couple months. Their little four-year-old boy was super excited about meeting his new little sister and talked about her all the time. You know, they're beginning a nursery, and then all of a sudden, you know, they, they've lost this little girl. And it was obviously a devastating loss, not just for them, but for our whole family, right? Because we were all excited and, and celebrating with them. You know, they've, they'd been through a lot. They'd been through a lot of fertility treatments and things like that. I actually didn't find that out till later. Um, and, and when my sister-in-law found out what had happened, my brother was actually on the other side of the country. Like, you know, he wasn't even there to be with her. And you guys know what airline travel is like right now. Like, he even had a hard time getting back to her. And it was just, God, why? Like, this is the worst. And it's like the worst timing and the worst circumstance and the worst way. You know, why, why is this happening? And in the day or two following getting that news, I was actually talking with another family member, you know, just about this horrible, heartbreaking tragedy that my my family was going through. And during that conversation, my family member, kind of towards the end of this conversation and talking about all the things that had happened and going through in the plan and how she was going to, my sister-in-law was going to recover, this other family member makes a comment, something to the effect of, well, I guess God just didn't want that little baby to be born. So in her effort to make sense of this loss, she made a judgment call about God's sovereignty, right? That really struck me. And, you know, I I guess because that's what we do, right? We try to make sense of these things. Because if we can understand the why, if we can pinpoint the reason or at least convince ourselves that there is a reason, whether or not we know what it is, then we can feel some sense of comfort, right? 
that there's a purpose to this, that there's a reason that this happened. So I don't know if you noticed what happened in the room as I said that. There were some grunts and some faces and some comments, right? You, some of you had some audible, invisible reactions to that comment. So your reaction to my family member's comment is going to reveal something about what your concept of God's sovereignty is. And you may not realize that it's actually very different than what one of your neighbors is thinking. Some of you might have been like, well, yeah, sure, God did that. But some of you were obviously like, oh, no, that's horrible. Why did she say that? And you may not realize that both of those things are going on, yeah? I'm almost kind of tempted to take a poll and be like, okay, who thought this and who thought this? Now, I'd never dare do that, of course. Right, we don't, yeah, we don't, we don't need to, uh, like, I have more to say. I don't want y'all to start arguing over the communion table, <laughs> right? But just to realize that there are no doubt both of those perspectives in this room. But I won't do that. Is God sovereign? Of course he is. Yeah, God's sovereign. But what does that mean exactly? Well, that's a very different question, isn't it? Sovereignty is a term for royalty, right? A king, a monarch sitting on the throne, someone who is in charge, someone who can issue their decrees and, and see them fulfilled, right? God's sovereignty is both his authority and his right to rule as creator of heavens and the earth, as the Lord, as the king of kings, as the one on the thrones, and also his ability to enforce his decrees, his ability to, and the actual power to carry out his own purposes. So they go together. It's his authority and his power. Um, a couple weeks ago when I talked about kingdom authority, you know, I use that policeman analogy. And so if we come back to that analogy in terms of this policeman thing, it's, it's both God's, I had this one little hair that is just being highlighted by this light here that's in my face. Um, so it is both his right to tell that car to stop, right? The authority to say stop as the one who created all the laws of the universe and everything. But it's also his power to physically stop that car should he have chosen to do so. God has both. We have a delegated authority, but God has both the authority and the power as a sovereign to do what he pleases and he purposes, yeah? But how does he actually employ that authority and that power? How does that play out in the circumstances of our lives? That's the question we're getting at, right? And honestly, why does it matter anyway? What on earth does it matter what we think if God is ultimately in control? And I think this question matters a lot, that we not just write it off. Years ago, I would have been like, I don't care. What's it matter? Like, God's got his thing, and what's it matter as me as a human? What, what I, it's because we're engaged in this. And there's two big reasons I think that this question really matters. What we think about God's sovereignty really matters. And first, I think it really matters because if we wait until we are in the thick of something really difficult to decide what we believe about who God is and about his character and what his nature is, it is likely going to be a whole lot harder for us to come out of that really difficult thing intact at all, right? without extra damage. Our thoughts and our reason, you know, when we're in the thick of something like what my brother and my sister-in-law were going through is gonna be so clouded by pain and hurt and confusion that we're not gonna be able to discern those truths nearly as well. 
So I think it's important what we think and it matters because we need to get ahead of this. We need to know when we go in to those valleys of the shadow of death who God is and what we believe about who he is and his character, okay? These are the base beliefs about who God is that we're going to fall back on in those times because that's what we do, right? Sometimes we get shaken back to our core foundation and we need to know what that core foundation is before we're shaken back to it because if our foundation isn't sure, the house won't stand, right? I think that's, gosh, we've seen so many fall from faith lately, right? When they hit hard times, and I think that's a lot of what's going on. We need to know who we believe God is and what he's about. And we get challenged with these really hard things because when you're in those situations, we have to default back to those core and base beliefs about God. I've been there. Have you guys been there? I've had probably two or three times in my life where I've really been shaken back to my core beliefs. And I have to come back to who God is and what I believe about his nature. I also think it really matters, especially in the vineyard, in the, the denomination, the church we're in, in the way that we practice and we believe, because there are theologies and mindsets that are actually uh, going to be at odds, theologies and mindsets and thoughts we have about the sovereignty of God that are actually going to be at odds with our beliefs about the kingdom of God. We can hold these things that don't make any sense together and we don't even realize it until push comes to shove. So what I mean by that is in the vineyard, we believe that the kingdom of God is a kingdom in conflict, right? That there are kingdoms of this world at odds with the kingdom of God and there is a battle going on. It's this now and not yet phrase that we use, right? With the evil powers, the principalities, the accuser, Satan, who is out there roaming, looking to steal, kill, and destroy, that the kingdom of God, though it is ultimately triumphant, is still in this age in battle and in conflict with the kingdoms of this world. And that conflict, that, that shrapnel that's flying because of this war, is a great deal of the source of the hurt and the suffering that we experience because Satan is still out there looking to take down anyone he can and so that's a lot of what we experience and it's important because our perception of God's sovereignty affects the way that we minister and the way that we live out our identity as co-heirs in Christ you know if we are someone who believes that everything that happens good bad ugly whatever is set in motion and predetermined by God that, that that's what his sovereignty looks like and there are some very intelligent very learned very studied theologians and pastors who believe this you know God-loving people but if we believe that every single thing that happens death life suffering illness whatever happens because God said I want that to happen then how on earth is it that we are going to intervene in spiritual warfare as a priesthood of believers who are authorized to use God's power and authority to affect what we see, the suffering happening in the world? Does that make sense? Okay, I think if we think that everything happens because God caused it to be, we're not going to be engaged in the ministry of Jesus to destroy the works of the devil. Do you follow me here? In effect, our desire to heal the sick and raise the dead and cast out demons and alleviate suffering and pursue justice and, and be a powerful force for good in all of mankind that you know God sent us here to be his image bearers and to do his work. How, how can we do that? Because if we believe that everything that happens, God made it happen, we're going to be, in essence, at odds with what God has purposed. It doesn't make any sense, right? 
So that's where I'm coming from. I hope you're following me there. And I hope you can see that how certain beliefs about God's sovereignty and the kingdom of God and our role in it aren't really compatible. If we really believe that God's kingdom is here and that we're a part of that and that we're kingdom bearers, that we're presence bearers, because we teach that all the time. Yeah? So we can't be fighting against God's ordained things. So something has to give. All right. So as we talk about God's sovereignty, there's going to be three different themes that you're going to hear me mention. And I, I bring these up. Um, I think they're really important in any discussion about the nature of God's sovereignty, that these are lenses sort of that we need to look through. And, and God's sovereignty always needs to be talked about in light of these three things, or else we begin to devise a theology um, that isn't really anchored in truth. So these three things are first the character of God. What do we know of his character? And not what we just our experiences might tell us. What is God himself revealed in his word about the nature of his character and his attributes? So that's the first thing that we need to consider. The second thing that we need to consider is the narrative of God, the story of God. What's the big picture that he has revealed for us in his word that is playing out beginning from end that he is the author and creator and perfecter of? What's his story that he's telling? Because we're not the center of the story. God is. So his character, his story, his narrative, and the third, which I just mentioned, the kingdom of God. Okay? Those three things, his rule, his reign, his character, his story, his nature, and what effect those things have. These three things, I believe, have to inform our understanding of God's sovereignty if we are going to avoid creating our own mythology about suffering. And I use that word mythology very specifically and intentionally because we will and can and have created mythologies about who God is that are based only on our experience and not God reve God's revealed word or his word made flesh. Okay? All right. Y'all still with me so far? All right. Awesome. So let's get into it then. So what my family member, this, this thing that they said, right? This response that my family member had to this awful circumstance, trying to make sense of it, was that actually the case? Did God actually prevent my new niece from being born? You know, when I started thinking about this, I started, you know, I can ask the same question. Did God take my eight-year-old niece that died in a tragic car accident several years ago? You know, I've, I've been through these tragedies, and is that the case? Do these types of tragedies happen because God ordained them? And, and set them in motion? Is it his sovereignty that dictates these type of events? When you're struggling, when you're hurting, when you've experienced loss, or even when you're an onlooker to the pain of others feeling completely helpless because you can do nothing about it, do you wonder, did God do this? You know, or do you at least wonder, why didn't God stop this? Why didn't God prevent this? Well, the good news is, Jesus's own in-person followers had a lot of these same questions. They were asking these questions back when he was walking the earth in physical form. Um, and they were wrestling with these same things. And fortunately for us, Jesus himself actually addresses some of them head-on directly. Um, I don't do slides like Josh a lot of the time because I'm just not a terribly creative person. So you don't get, you got to pull your Bibles out today. Um, so if you'll pull your Bible out, please. And if you need one, there's some on the back table. Let's look at Luke chapter 13 together. 
This is in that time when Jesus is always kind of hanging with the crowds and teaching and walking around and building disciples and, and, and teaching about the kingdom of God, announcing the kingdom of God, demonstrating it with his power and healing and, and deliverance and all those things. And so the very beginning of Luke chapter 13, he's talking to the crowds as he had a way of doing, and we read this. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, emphasis, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died in the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. So the people in this crowd are questioning Jesus about this really terrible event that happened. There's this group of Galilean worshipers, that, that first line there where it talks about their blood being mixed. There's this group of Galilean worshipers who had been worshiping at the temple, giving their animal sacrifices as they were called to do. And a group of Pilate's army, Pilate's men, comes in and slaughters them literally as they're offering their sacrifices so that their own blood is mixed with the blood of the sacrifices they're offering. How horrific. It, it may or may not have been because they were a part of this rebellion against Rome. There's meh, maybe, who knows, really. Um, but either way, it was this horrific event that happens in the temple, and their own blood is mixed with that of the sacrifices. And these people are just horrified, you know. And they're asking Jesus, what is, what is this about? Why did this happen? And it seems to be that their assumption is that this happened. They're trying to make sense of it too, right? They're trying to come up with the why of it so that it makes sense. And they're saying, well, is it because they were more sinful? Then the rest, is that what's going on, God? Is that, was this a punishment from you? And we look at Jesus' response. Jesus is very clear in his answer, and he condemns this notion that this is somehow God doing this, some sort of punishment of some sort. And while he's at it, he's like, you know, and not only that, let's talk about the tower that fell, this tower of Siloam that fell. It was this tr another tragedy and we don't know what this tower was for. We don't know how big it was or why it was built or why it fell. But when it did, 18 lives were lost. And so clearly there were some horrific things that had happened recently. And Jesus is very clear, you know, no, this isn't God. That part actually reminds me. You guys remember back this summer when the tower the, in Miami fell, Surfside condos, and all those people lost their lives in the middle of the night as they were sleeping? It's very reminiscent of that to me. God, why? This seems so random. Why? And they're searching for the same answers. And Jesus makes it clear, this, this isn't the way of God's providence. This isn't how God does this. What we attribute to God, what we blame on God, really says a lot about how we understand God's character. Yeah? What does the Lord himself, though, reveal about his character? In Exodus 34, you remember that story when he's passing by Moses? He kind of reveals something about himself. He says this, The Lord, the Lord God, is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving devotion and faithfulness, maintaining loving devotion to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin and this is echoed throughout the psalms the experience of the psalmist and all throughout the rest of scripture 
God is gracious. We sing it, right? He's gracious and he's compassionate. He's slow to anger, abounding in love and mercy, forgiving sin and iniquity and transgression. I'm sure that you all have heard, as have I, assertions that things like Hurricane Katrina destroying New Orleans or any number of storms that have hit that area for that matter or you know earthquakes that decimate towns in Haiti or even things like the the AIDS epidemic from the 80s and 90s or even this own COVID pandemic that we find ourselves in right now I am sure that you have heard people say that these acts are things that God has purposed for either punishment or judgment or calls to repentance anybody else heard that anybody say that yeah yeah I've heard that a lot somehow it's this thought that God was so upset about you know the debauchery on Bourbon Street or the practice of voodoo or you know politics in a nation turning away from God or or the prolific prolific prolif- a lot of sexual immorality <laughs> that wouldn't come out Pro- yeah the thank you that just wouldn't come out um, of sexual immorality that he was so upset that he sent these acts of God as we even call them, like in our insurance policies, right, as punishment for sin or judgment or something like that. But is it God's judgment? Is it his call to repentance? When I look at this passage from Luke and I see the way that Jesus responded to these questions of these followers, you know, in this description of God's patience and his compassion, it tells me, no, 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 God's response to sinfulness, his call to repentance isn't undergirded with a threat of tragedy that's not his nature yes yes we're called to repent yes we have to turn from all this junk but the call to repent over and over and over again in scripture from Jesus himself and his disciples is a call to repent that is coupled with the announcement that the kingdom of God is near that's our catalyst God has come near and brought his rule and reign near and that's our motivation to change our ways and turn away is to turn to the kingdom and the king who has come in our midst and he's here and he's brought his kingdom and his power with him so turn and repent because look it's right here everything you need and want and promised is right here turn and repent because your Lord is here he's come not the threat of tragedy and calamity what does it reveal about the way that we think about God's character and nature so how does God's character and his goodness on one hand and yet his sovereignty and his power on, his, on the other um, align? And, and how do, is it that we end up with such awful hardship and suffering in this world if, if that's God's nature and character? And this is where I think that we have to come to that second point that I said. And we really have to remember the story of God, the narrative that God himself is telling. What is it that the Bible reveals to us? Well, we know this story, right? We've been learning it in Sunday school or how, whenever you start a church, right? But we tend to pluck pieces out of it and dissect it and have standalone. But the overall story is that God in his goodness creates this beautiful world, this beautiful garden, and people to tend it and to rule with him and subdue it and care for it. And he gives them freedom and he gives them free will. But as we know, they choose that freedom to choose a path that is not his and to go in a direction that is selfish and and self-centered instead of the way that he is set out for them. And so sin enters the world and it begins to degrade not only the people in their hearts but their relationships and all of creation as well. 
convinced that ticks and spiders are a part of the fall. You can't <laughs> convince me otherwise. Mosquitoes, too. I got a... I, I, I rescued a mouse this week. I'm just saying. He got in a hole and I got him out. I'm okay with rodents. I'm fine with those. Until they poop in our kitchen back there. That's a different story. Anyway. So now sin is degrading all of creation, our relationships, our lives, our hearts, our world. And so make note that death is now in the picture, but death was not in the narrative of God. He didn't put it there. That wasn't his plan and intention. We introduced that. And so the first chapter of James actually tells us that when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. That's where death came from, right? There's uh, the curriculum that we use back in kids' church. I love it. It's, it's cute. It's puppets. It's from the guy that did um, Veggie Tales, Phil Vischer. It's called What's in the Bible. I, I think it's adorable if you have kids and you don't have it. Like, go buy the home edition. I love it. But there's this one part in there that I thought was so good when it began to explain to kids the, the effect of sin and how sin works in our world. And it talks about three different ways that sin affects our world. First is the stain of sin on us, right? We have sinned, therefore we have this stain on us that Jesus took care of on the cross, right? And that as we repent and we accept Jesus, he cleanses us from that stain that's on us, right? But sometimes we stop there. We don't think about the other ways that sin affects us. The other two ways that this video points out, and I love it, so there's a stain of sin, but then there's the power of sin. Because even though God forgives us and we're clean and, and we receive his righteousness, that sin still tends to whisper in our ears, right? There's a power it has, and it still all throughout our lives whispers and tries to draw us back in to the muck that we came out of. And if we overcome those two, by the grace of God, there's still a presence of sin because there's all these other people out there sinning. There's all these other people out there still living broken lives not rescued by the grace of Jesus. And their junk affects us. Their pride and their greed and their jealousy and their malice, right? We live in a world that has a presence of sin. Even if our own is forgiven and washed clean, there is a presence of sin in our world that still has a very profound effect. And sometimes we forget that. And a huge amount, not all, but a huge amount of the suffering and the loss that we experience is just from that presence of sin in our world. It's the broken condition of creation caused when the first people said, nope, God, I'm not going to go your way. I'm going to go my own. And generations since have followed suit, right? But back to the story. God is gracious and he's merciful and he sees this problem, sorry, and he devises a rescue plan. He's going to come. He himself is going to come. He's going to come in person into our world, into our brokenness, into our sinful nature, and he is going to deal with the stain of sin, with the power of sin, and the presence of sin all at once. He's going to take care of it, right? And so ultimately, the character of God is fully revealed in the Son of God, the person of Jesus. And in Jesus, the fullness of the deity dwells right there in whole. And as Colossians tells us, it's all right there wrapped up, the full character of God in the person of Jesus. And as he's declared, uh, 
numerous places, but in Isaiah and in Psalms, his purposes are going to stand and he's going to do all he pleases and none of our sin and none of our junk is going to derail it. The end is determined from the beginning. And so the very story of the Bible is answering this problem of sin and depravity and evil and suffering and death all through God's rescue plan and what he has purposed. It's the truth that God is even able to accomplish everything he set out from the very beginning, everything he declared in spite of our brokenness that we're surrounded by and even that we've contributed to. And so the sovereignty of God, the lordship, the kingship, the rule and reign of God is made manifest in Jesus. And Jesus reveals lordship how? By coming and controlling everything? By, no, this is, <laughs> I, I almost said, so there's a phrase we used to use growing up. Um, my mom would say, I'm going to come yank a knot in your tail. I mean, set you straight. Anybody else? Anybody else know that phrase? Um, yeah. I'm come, come and jerk a knot in your tail. It's like, just going to set you straight. Like, that, Jesus, you know, I think we, especially his followers, they were looking for him to do that, right? To come in and blaze a trail and set it all right and thump everybody on the head that was wrong and be controlling. But that's not how he does it. That's not how he reveals the lordship of God. He doesn't come and crack a whip except for that one time in the temple, but you know he was upset. It's okay. Um, no, Jesus is subversive in his way of showing, showing kingship and lordship and revealing God's sovereignty because he declares that he didn't come to be served but to serve. This is very different. Let's look at Mark 10 together. I'm going to pick up the pace because I got started a little late. So Mark 10, going to verse 35, and let me read these 10 verses. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, any parent would be like, what you up to? Jesus didn't have to be a parent to know they were up to something, right? What do you want me to do for you? Yeah, it's, what are you getting at, he asks. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. You do not know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized? I am baptized with we can they answered gosh they were bold and ready to go weren't they Jesus said to them excuse me <coughs> Jesus said to them you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant these places belong to those for whom they have been prepared when the ten heard about this so they go back to their ten and the other ten are like up with James and John that was sneaky they're, they're not real thrilled with this situation they became indignant with them with James and John now pay close attention here to how Jesus characterizes the authority um, of God and contrasts it with a worldly authority Jesus called them together so James and John oh, okay guys come on group meeting come on calls them together let's talk about this and said you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. It's this hierarchical above you, over you power, right? A top-down kind of power. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Well, that probably really upset James and John, right? And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
James and John here in this story, now we rag on them a lot, bless their hearts, There's, their stuff got recorded in scripture, right? Thank goodness ours doesn't. Yeah, aren't we grateful that ours isn't written down for like all posterity to look back and be like, what were they thinking? But they were like the prototype of humanity misunderstanding God's sovereignty and how it plays out. When God becomes king, this is like if you take nothing else away today, when God becomes king, it's not equated with control, okay? This is what Jesus showed us. Our sinful attitudes about authority and control have pervaded our concept of, a, of sovereignty. Our own sinful thoughts about how this works is distorted it. And we have confused God being in control with God being controlling. Can you see that? All right. We equate lordship, sovereignty, you know, kinging, God being king, being in control with being controlling. And that's not his character. That's not his nature. And I was thinking this through, and I just thought, you know, isn't it interesting that the same thing that you and I can look at on the news and in the world and see as corruption in governments and in corporations, you know, that power, that authority, that control, that lack of freedom, that dictatorship, the same thing, all those things that we look at in corporations and governments and say, that's not right, that's not how things should be done, we somehow seem to expect and want from God. Does that strike you? We at least wonder why he's not exhibiting those characteristics. God, you have the power, why don't you? Why don't you act in these ways that even we kind of know when we see it, it's not quite right. We often seem to long for some type of like a spiritual manifest destiny, right? We're going to take over and make it be the way it's supposed to be. But according to Jesus, that's not God's MO. That's not his character. He's not in control by being controlling. So how is he in control? Well, honestly, you know, to even ask this question of why doesn't God just show up and shut it all down, right? Like the pain, the suffering, the loss, the junk, the hurt, the injustice. If you think about it, it's really disregarding God's Trinitarian nature, right? God in three parts, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? We see these three parts of God, and we sang about it this morning, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. We acknowledge, we know there's three parts to God, but when we say things like, God, why don't you just show up and stop it all? We kind of disregard what we know about God's nature. Um, the theologian N.T. Wright had this quote that I loved. It says that trying to do this, trying to wonder why, or wondering why God didn't just show up on the scene and stop it all, is really trying to deduce something about God while going behind Jesus' back. I like that. You like that? I thought that was funny. It's trying to get at God without going through the person of Jesus. And as we know, he's the only way. He's the path to the Father. So should God just rule with an iron fist from heaven, you know, dictating and directing these events like, you know, some great cosmic puppet master, you know, controlling all the pieces and the parts, you know? Well, so what about Jesus? What about Jesus then? What about the word that was made flesh and came and dwelled among us, showing us a new way to be human? What about the Holy Spirit? that stayed as our comforter and as our advocate, as our counselor. 
you know, this is really what's at the core of that whole last series we did on the kingdom of God. He came to show us a new way, that he brought his kingdom here. You know, we find our answers, not just God come fix it, but in the person and the life of Jesus. That's where all these answers about all this stuff comes from. Because Jesus goes willingly to the cross as the quintessential innocent sufferer. Have you ever thought about that? We ask God, why do all these innocents suffer? And we look back, and there it is in the Gospels. Jesus first saying, all right, I'm going to take care of this. He is the quintessential innocent sufferer who goes to the cross on our behalf. And all of our questions of, you know, why do bad things happen? Why do the innocent suffer? It's all right there confronted at the crucifixion with the most innocent human ever hanging on the cross suffering. So there's no, there's no suffering that's strange to him or alien to him. The cross, kind of going back to this idea of, you know, the natural disasters and the questions, the things we have, God, why are you doing this? the calls to repentance. The cross is a sufficient call to repentance. No hurricanes or earthquakes or plagues or anything like that need be added. The cross of Christ, that's, that's all we need to see. The crucifixion of Jesus is sufficient as our sacrifice of sin. The cross of Christ is sufficient as a call to repentance. So when we deem, you know, suffering, whether it's natural disasters or financial ruin or illness or death or whatever, as punishment by God for sin, what we're essentially saying is that the cross of Christ wasn't enough to accomplish those things. It is enough. Sin has its consequences, of course. Of course, we see that. But mercy triumphs over judgment. That's in James. We need to honestly ask ourselves, church, is our concept of God's sovereignty way more rooted in the story of Noah and the flood than it is in the cross of Christ? Where is our concept of God's sovereignty pulling from? Because Jesus gave us a new covenant of grace. All right? Let's look at Romans 8 together, and and we'll be wrapping up pretty soon. All right, Romans chapter 8. We know, this is RSV version because there's something it does here that I love. We know that in everything, God works for good with those who love him. That may be different than what some of you see in your translations. Who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among, among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. What, sh- what then shall we say to this? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he also not give us all things with him? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God and indeed intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword or any of that other bad suffering and stuff and loss and hurt and pain, can any of it separate us? As it is written, For thy sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, we rarely, if ever, get real concrete answers that I know that we often long for about why bad things happen, about the tragedies that we face. But we do know what it isn't. It's not an uncaring God. He sent his son to die. He suffered not only for us, but with us not only in his life but in his very body it's not punishment in his death he took that on our behalf on the cross and he gave us a new covenant of grace and it's not his powerlessness because he's, he's creator of heaven and earth and he holds all power in his hand and his purposes will stand so all of our questions of where is God when we're suffering, where is God when we're experiencing loss, he's right there in it with us. Having come in human likeness and endured all of our suffering and our loss and our pain in his own body and life. Um, last week, Josh talked about that chaos thing, and actually Anne mentioned it this morning um, as she was praying, you know, and and when I, I wasn't here last week, when I went back and I watched that sermon, I was like, like, whoa, that's, you know, this is why Josh and I, we just don't have a, I, those of you who come over and have these theological discussions with Josh, thank you. It keeps me from having to have them. Okay. Cause uh, you know, if somebody comes to me and they're like, hey, want to talk about like the origin of chaos and good and evil. I'm like, shh, I'm watching the game. <laughs> you know, y'all go do that on the back porch. But uh, so he talked about this chaos thing, and it, it really seemed to strike a lot of you, and that's awesome. I'm, I'm so glad. You know, that's I. Some of you really, I think, got some answers and some some something to wrestle with in that, and I think that's really cool. He's gotten a lot of feedback, and so thank you guys who've, you know, given your feedback to him that that was really profound for you and and has gotten you kind of in this wrestling match with the Holy Spirit like God how's it work um, and if you didn't see it, you know, it's online. Like I said, the YouTube version's online, and and there's the audio um, on the website. But so the only thing, though, just kind of hearkening back to that uh, for a second, the only thing I want to mention about that chaos thing, when I heard it, the spirit immediately said to me, yeah, okay, there's chaos. And it started as good, and it's, it's been contorted, and this, this sea, this image, right, of the sea and the chaos and, and the unknown and all this thing. But remember this that when chaos starts to feel like it's tossing and turning us and we're losing our footing and our grip, Jesus came to his scared and fearful disciples walking on the chaos, walking out on the sea above it with power and authority over it, not daunted by it, not eliminating it, but above it showing his authority. He's even God of the chaos, okay? That's all I wanted to say about that. All right. Um, that was a side note. All right. So God's sovereignty can be seen often the best just in the simple truth that he's always present with us. His sovereignty isn't exhibited in control over us. It's expressed in his presence with us. And nothing, as we just read, absolutely nothing, no amount of loss or violence or suffering can remove us from that. 
And in all of it, he works with us for the good. And I don't see God working with us for the good, meaning that God makes all things happen like some sort of great cosmic puppet master, you know, working behind the scenes to determine every outcome. I see this as a testament to God's redemptive, loving, gracious character. That bad things that happen to us, whatever the cause, get transformed into beneficial things for us through him. Um, I've told many of you, and I'm going to end with this, that, that I have seen God's beauty and order more in calculus and physics than just about anywhere else. Yeah, <laughs> Melissa, she's, a, she's a, calcu- a high school calculus teacher. I do. I love it. Oh, I, I can't love it anymore. I've forgotten it all. I graduated from high school 20-something years ago. But I loved calculus and physics because I saw this beautiful power-created order of God playing out in it. And so I, I loved it. I did great in it. I, you know, I was good at math. I, I Don't make me write an English paper, please. Um, but because I loved it, I actually took a calculus class again when I got in my freshman year of college. And, and uh, that was an easy A for me. You know, like I, I could get an easy one freshman year. But then because I did that and was so good at it, I was like, I decided my sophomore year to take a theoretical calculus class. That was a giant mistake. <laughs> that was not the yay God, you know, created order. That was the chaos, okay? The theoretical calculus class was the chaos, right? And so I took this class, and this class, I just had no idea what I was getting myself into. It was so hard, I kid you not. Every test, there was a test every, like, Friday or something, we're in our week, and there were only 10 questions in the test, and it was so hard that the teacher gave us all 10 questions spelled out as they would be on the test and said, you have a week to figure it out. There was no resource prohibited. Go work in groups, figure it out. The problem was all those nice formulas and derivatives and things we'd had in our regular calculus class didn't apply here. There were too many variables. We'd have four, five, six variables in one problem, and there was no formula to figure this out. So my roommate and I and this other guy who was, you know, said he like was top of his class, we went and hid in our dorm room for hours and hours and worked on these problems. And the, the only thing was we couldn't bring our notes back into class with us. We had to remember how we solved it if we figured it out. And we just had 10 questions, that was it. The average class grade on each test was in the 20s or 30s, usually. She graded on a curve, thank God. I think one time we got into the 60s. Um, but, you know, we, we ended up doing okay. W- you know, with enough effort, you know, we kind of figured it out or whatever. But this class was all about solving these problems that just had no formula. You just had to take life and what you knew and define things by other things and kind of figure it out. There was no predetermined method for this. There were just too many unknowns there. And it's not that the answers didn't exist. It's just that they were buried and hard to find in these variables, you know. But sometimes with enough persistence, with enough work, with enough tears and gnashing of teeth and crying and praying Jesus help, you know, and relying on our friends or whatever and looking at it from different angles and perspectives, we figured enough of it out and remembered some of it to put down on the test, but not perfectly. And, you know, like I said, I'm a math science person, so I I... I realized in preparing this sermon that I relate to the sovereignty of God much in that same way. The answers are there. They're there. But oftentimes there's just too many variables, you know, for us as humans to really see it clearly. 
And this is how I end up trusting in God's sovereignty. Because as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, he sees the value of those variables. He sees the variables we don't understand. Not only does he see them and know them, he's able to introduce new ones and take some away and redefine them and work them out for his purposes and his plans. He knows the quantities. His sovereignty is what keeps his purposes from being derailed, even in spite of our choices to go our own way. Even when the, the variables are painful and confusing, he's still, he's still got it. Um, I don't know if you guys know who Tim Mackey is. If you watch any Bible Project videos, he's that kind of grating voice in the Bible. I, I love him. He's brilliant. He's a PhD. He's so smart, um, and he's a creative director. But I came across um, a sermon of his where he quoted this thing called the promise of paradox, and I just thought it was brilliant. And those of you, by the way, if any of you are considering even still going to the national conference, he's going to be a keynote speaker there, so I'm super excited. Um, but there was this quote, and I was like, oh, that's so vineyard. I love it. It says, the spiritual journey proceeds with a trembling confidence that God's truth is too large for either or. It must be this or it must be that. It can be apprehended only by the complexity of both and. Now, if you don't, if you don't know what I'm saying there, um, this really resonated with me because that both and thing is a real value of ours. Sign up on that website for the Vineyard Connections and Essentials, okay? So our ultimate hope then, as I see it, and that I share with you all, with all those disclaimers at the beginning of, you can disagree with me, that's okay, Brant might disagree with me, Josh might have disagreed with me. It's not that we come to the conclusion that, oh, all these bad things were ordained by God, and thus they have purpose, and thus it's going to be okay, and I can feel better about this horrible thing I've been through. That's not the conclusion that I come to. It's that all these hard things, all this suffering, all this loss, is transient and it's not going to thwart the plans and purposes of God from coming to fruition in our lives and he is right there with us in it in the midst of all of it and so we can take all of our questions of why God right to the cross where Jesus waits not necessarily with answers but certainly with empathy because he's been there sorry I know we went long man don't tell Josh. I always tell him. I'm going to let him out earlier than you. And I never do. <laughs> so thank you, Jesus. That you are in control, but not by being controlling. By sending your son to die and suffer with us and to, to serve and to show us a better way of being human. Thank you, Lord. And as we go through this week, as we look at the problems of our world and the problems of our lives and the junk that faces us, Lord. May we be the people with the hope to tell those that we see suffering the kingdom of God is near. He loves you and he's in it right there with you. May we be a people of hope. In Jesus' name.